Chapter 1 The Religious and Moral Condition of England at the Beginning of the Eighteenth Century The subject I discuss in this book is partly historical and partly biographical. You will be disappointed if you expect a story of fiction or something partly drawn from my imagination. Such writing is not in my field, and I would have no time for it even if it was. Plain facts and the stern realities of life absorb all the time that I can spare to write. I believe, though, that with most readers and listeners, the subject I have chosen is one that needs no apology. The person who feels no interest in the history and biography of his own country is certainly a poor patriot and a worse philosopher. He cannot very well be called a patriot. True patriotism will make a person care about everything that concerns his country. A true patriot will want to know something about everyone who has left his mark on his nation's character. He is certainly not a philosopher, for philosophy is history teaching by examples. To know the steps by which England has reached her present position is essential to a right understanding of both our national privileges and our national dangers. To know the men whom God raised up to do His work in days gone by will guide us in looking around for standard-bearers in our own days and in the days to come. I dare say that there is no period of English history that is so thoroughly instructive to a Christian as the middle of the eighteenth century. We are still feeling that period's influence at this very day. It is the period with which our great-grandfathers and their fathers were immediately connected. It is a period from which we can draw very useful lessons for our own times. Let me begin by trying to describe the actual condition of England a hundred years ago. A few simple facts will be enough to make this clear. I am not going to speak of our political condition. Our standing among the nations of the earth was comparatively poor, weak, and low. Our voice among the nations of the earth carried far less weight than it does now. The foundation of our empire in India had hardly been laid. Our Australian possessions were a part of the world only just discovered, but not colonized. To be a dissenter, a nonconformist, one who followed God outside of the state church, was to be regarded only as one degree better than being seditious and a rebel. Corrupt and filthy towns abounded. Bribery among all classes was open, shameless, and common. That was England politically a hundred years ago. I also am not going to speak of our condition from a financial and economic point of view. Our vast cotton, silk, and linen manufacturing had hardly begun to exist. Our enormous mineral treasures of coal and iron had been barely touched. We had no steamboats, no locomotive engines, no railways, no gas, no electric telegraph, no penny postal system, no scientific farming, no solid roads, no free trade, no sanitary arrangements, and no police deserving of the name. Let any Englishman imagine, if he can, his country without any of the things that I have just mentioned, and he will have a little idea of the economic and financial condition of England a hundred years ago. However, I leave these things to the political economists and historians of this world. As interesting as they are, they undoubtedly do not form any part of the subject that I want to consider. As a minister of Christ's gospel, I want to confine my attention and direct your eye to the religious and moral condition of England a hundred years ago. 
The condition of this country in a religious and moral point of view in the middle of the eighteenth century was so painfully unsatisfactory that it is difficult to relate any adequate idea of it. English people of the present day who have never been led to look into the subject have no idea of the darkness that prevailed. From the year 1700 until about the era of the French Revolution, England seemed barren of all that was really good. How such a state of things could have arisen in a land of readily available Bibles and professing Protestantism is almost past comprehension. Christianity seemed to lie as one dead, insomuch that you might have said, She is dead. Morality, no matter how much exalted in the pulpits, was thoroughly trampled underfoot in the streets. There was darkness in high places, and darkness in low places. There was darkness in the court, in the camp, in parliament, and in business. There was darkness in country, and darkness in town. There was darkness among rich, and darkness among poor. There was a dense, thick, religious, and moral darkness. It was a darkness that could be felt. Does anyone ask what the churches were doing then? The Church of England existed in those days with her admirable articles of belief, her time-honored liturgy, her religious system, her Sunday services, and her ten thousand clergy. The nonconformist body also existed with its hardly won liberty and its free pulpit. However, the same sad account can be given of both groups. They existed, but they could hardly be said to have lived. They did nothing. They were sound asleep. The curse of the Uniformity Act seemed to rest on the Church of England. The blight of ease and freedom from persecution seemed to rest upon the dissenters. Natural theology, without a single distinctive doctrine of Christianity, cold morality, or barren orthodoxy, formed the regular teaching both in church and chapel. Sermons everywhere were little better than miserable moral essays utterly devoid of anything likely to awaken, convert, or save souls. Both groups seemed agreed on one point, and that was to let the devil alone and to do nothing for hearts and souls. The weighty truths for which John Hooper and Hugh Latimer had gone to the stake, and for which Richard Baxter and dozens of Puritans had gone to jail, seemed laid on the shelf and completely forgotten. When this was the state of things in churches and chapels, it can surprise no one to learn that the land was flooded with unbelief and skepticism. The prince of this world made good use of his opportunity. His agents were active and zealous in promoting every kind of strange and blasphemous belief. Anthony Collins and Matthew Tyndall denounced Christianity as priestcraft. William Whiston pronounced the miracles of the Bible to be big deceptions. Thomas Woolston declared them to be allegories. Arianism and Socinianism were openly taught by Samuel Clarke and Joseph Priestley and became fashionable among the intellectual part of the community. Of the utter inability of the pulpit to stem the progress of all this flood of evil, one single fact will give us some idea. The celebrated lawyer, William Blackstone, had the curiosity early in the reign of George III to go from church to church and hear every clergyman of note in London. He said that he did not hear a single sermon that had more Christianity in it than the writings of Cicero, and that it would have been impossible for him to know, based upon what he heard, 
whether the preacher was a follower of Confucius, of Muhammad, or of Christ. Sadly, evidence about this painful subject is only too abundant. My difficulty is not so much to find witnesses as to select them. This was the period about which Archbishop Secker said in one of his exhortations, In this we cannot be mistaken, that an open and professed disregard of Christianity is become, through a variety of unhappy causes, the distinguishing character of the age. Such are the corruption and contempt of principle in the higher part of the world, and the excess, lack of moderation, and boldness of committing crimes in the lower part, that must, if the torrent of impiety does not stop, become absolutely fatal. Christianity is ridiculed and criticized with very little restraint, and the teachers of it without any at all. This was the period when Bishop Joseph Butler, in his preface to the Analogy of Religion, used the following remarkable words. It has come to be taken for granted that Christianity is no longer a subject of inquiry, but that it is now at last considered to be fictitious, and accordingly it is treated as if, in the present age, this were a point agreed upon among all people of discernment, and nothing remained except to set it up as a main topic for mirth and ridicule. These types of complaints were not just confined to churchmen. Dr. Isaac Watts declared that in his day there was a general decay of living Christianity in the hearts and lives of people, and it was a general matter of sorrowful observation among all who lay the cause of God to heart. Dr. John Guise, another very admirable nonconformist, said, The religion of nature makes up the favored topic of our age, and the religion of Jesus is valued only for the sake of that, and only as far as it carries on the light of nature and is a bare improvement of that kind of light. All that is distinctively Christian, or that is specific to Christ, everything concerning Him that does not have its apparent foundation in natural light, or that goes beyond its principles, is dismissed, banished, and despised. Testimony like this could easily be multiplied tenfold, but I will spare you. Enough probably has been shown to prove that when I speak of the moral and religious condition of England at the beginning of the eighteenth century as painfully deficient, I am not exaggerating. What were the Anglican bishops like in those days? Some of them were undoubtedly men of powerful intellect and learning and of unblameable lives, but the best of them, like Thomas Secker, Joseph Butler, Edmund de Gibson, Robert Louth, and George Horne, seemed unable to do more than deplore the existence of evils that they saw but did not know how to remedy. Others, like George Lavington and William Warburton, brought fierce charges of enthusiasm and fanaticism, and appeared afraid of England becoming too religious. The majority of the Anglican bishops, to say the truth, were mere men of the world. They were unfit for their positions. The prevailing tone of the Episcopal body can be estimated by the fact that Archbishop Frederick Cornwallis gave balls and parties at Lambeth Palace until the King himself interfered by letter and requested him to stop. Let me also add that when the occupants of the Episcopal bench were troubled by the rapid spread of George Whitefield's influence, it was seriously suggested in high quarters that the best way to stop his influence was to make him a bishop. What were the regular clergy like in those days? 
The vast majority of them were sunk in worldliness, and neither knew nor cared anything about their profession. They neither did good themselves nor liked anyone else to do it for them. They hunted, they farmed, they swore, they drank, and they gambled. They seemed determined to know everything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When they met together, it was generally to toast church and king, and to build one another up in worldly mindedness, preconceived opinions, ignorance, and formality. When they returned to their own communities, it was to do as little as possible and to preach as seldom as possible. When they did preach, their sermons were so unspeakably and indescribably bad that it's comforting to know they were generally preached to empty pews. What kind of theological literature was left to us from a hundred years ago? It was the poorest and weakest in the English language. This is the age to which we owe such divinity as that of the sermons of Tillotson and Blair. Inquire at any old bookseller's shop, and you will find there is no theology as unsaleable as the sermons published about the middle and latter part of the eighteenth century. What sort of education did the lower orders of clergy have a hundred years ago? In the greater part of parishes, and especially in rural districts, they had no education at all. Nearly all our rural schools have been built since 1800. So extreme was the ignorance that a Methodist preacher in Somersetshire was charged before the magistrates with swearing because in preaching he quoted the text, He who believes not shall be damned. To top it all off, the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford actually expelled six students from the university because they held Methodist-like beliefs and began to pray, read, and expound Scripture in private houses. Some people said that for an Oxford student to spontaneously swear would not get the student in trouble, but to spontaneously pray was an offence that would not be tolerated. What were the morals like a hundred years ago? It is probably enough to say that dueling, adultery, fornication, gambling, swearing, Sabbath-breaking, and drunkenness were hardly regarded as wrong at all. They were the fashionable practices of people in the highest ranks of society, and no one was thought any worse of for indulging in them. What was the popular literature a hundred years ago? I pass over the fact that Bolingbroke, Gibbon, and Hume, the historian, were all deeply dyed with skepticism. I speak of the light reading that was then popular. Turn to the pages of Fielding, Smollett, Swift, and Stern, and you have the answer. The cleverness of these writers is undeniable, but the indecency of many of their writings is so glaring and blatant that few people today would want to allow their works to be seen on their coffee tables. My picture, I fear, is a very dark and gloomy one. I wish it were in my power to throw a little more light into it. But facts are stubborn things, especially facts about literature. The best literature of a hundred years ago is to be found in the moral writings of Joseph Addison, Samuel Johnson, and Richard Steele. But the effects of such literature on the general public, it may be feared, was incredibly small. In fact, I believe that Johnson and the essayists had no more influence on the religion and morality of the people than the broom of the renowned Mrs. Partington had on the waves of the Atlantic Ocean. 
To sum it all up and bring this part of my subject to a conclusion, I ask my listeners to remember that the good works with which everyone is now familiar did not exist a hundred years ago. William Wilberforce had not yet attacked the slave trade. John Howard had not yet reformed prisons. Robert Rakes had not yet established Sunday schools. We had no Bible societies, no free schools for the poor children, no city missions, no pastoral aid societies, and no missions to the heathen. The spirit of slumber was over the land. From a religious and moral point of view, England was sound asleep. As I conclude this chapter, I cannot help remarking that we should be more thankful for the times in which we live. I fear we are far too inclined to look at the evils we see around us and to forget how much worse things were a hundred years ago. I boldly admit that I have no faith in those good old times of which some delight to speak. I regard them as mere fables and myths. I believe that our own times are the best times that England has ever seen. I don't say this boastfully. I know we have many things to regret, but I do say that we could be worse. I do say that we were much worse a hundred years ago. The general standard of religion and morality is undoubtedly far higher now. Nevertheless, in 1868 we are awake. We see and feel evils to which people were indifferent a hundred years ago. We struggle to be free from these evils. We want to change. This is a vast improvement. With all our many faults, we are not sound asleep. On every side there is stir, activity, movement, and progress, and not stagnation. As bad as we are, we confess our wrong. As weak as we are, we acknowledge our failings. As feeble as our efforts are, we strive to improve. As little as we do for Christ, we do try to do something. Let us thank God for this. Things could be worse. Comparing our own days with the middle of the eighteenth century, we have reason to thank God and take courage. England is in a far better state than it was a hundred years ago.